hello all. This is uh, Kino Kingdom, The Men Who Talk, episode 50. A milestone. A milestone in our history, Rupert. It is. Five million subscribers. <laughs> is that the milestone? No, no, I think you're looking at um, a, a YouTube sensation, Rupert. We we, have, we haven't got that many. Um, although we did recently hit over a thousand downloads, which is awesome. That's good. Um, what was I going to say then? You, you reminded me of something. It's, it's gone now, yeah. Um, uh, 50, episode 50, a milestone. Oh, something really, really funny and clever popped into my head and it's, it's gone. So, just leaving this awkward introduction now. It's fantastic. Yeah, I find that happens a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, we've got some mild, mild, gentle celebrations um, for the 50th episode. I've got a quiz for Rupert. And Rupert is going to talk about a film that is 100 years old this year. Uh, which is Dogma by Kevin Smith. <laughs> and that's going to seeg into a film that he's seen in the cinema because Rupert Go, he's one of those people that goes to the cinema and doesn't yeah. just type, type in Oliver Grunner in Amazon Prime of a Saturday night as he rubs his hands with glee, like some of us. Or indeed PM <laughs> Entertainment. <laughs> they have the goal, the, like I said, the, the high watermark of, of 90s action. Uh, even better than Canon, maybe. Because well yeah it's certainly a spiritual successor to canon anyway but it was I think the 90s action was that perfect blend of like stunt based action sequences and questionable politics which was which is really <laughs> all you need from an action movie as far as I'm concerned <laughs> um, so yeah we'll we'll kick off with the um, the Arkansas <clears throat> because um, I, I've had quite a few responses to this and I, I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say the names because it's getting it's getting confusing <laughs> this was so, difficult this was very <laughs> difficult I just, didn't expect to get so many responses and this um, is Chloe Grace Moretz to Pat Morita or vice versa yeah, yeah and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've done this I have but I'm not <laughs> I'm not convinced that I'm gonna win this one this was tricky because it's actually one all to you in the audience now so this is the decider of it <laughs> After okay. 15 rounds, it's one all. It's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. Chloe Grace Moretz to Pat Morita. And this is off Regan. And it is Chloe Grace Moretz was in Kick-Ass with Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who was in Godzilla with Brian Cranston, who was in Kung Fu Panda 3 with James Hong, who was in Blunt Movie with Pat Morita. So that's four steps there. Bloody hell. We've had another one from, let me just work out who this is. This is from someone I don't, I have no idea, just someone called Mike. Um, and, and this is, um, hello Mike, by the way. Uh, this is Chloe Grace Moretz uh, was in Bad Neighbours 2 with Seth Rogen, who starred with Craig Robinson in This Is The End. Craig Robinson starred with William Zabka in Hot Tub Time Machine. And William Zabka was obviously with Pat Morita in Karate Kid, which is another four-stepper. <clears throat> Um, this is from Max, and it is Chloe Grace Moretz was in Kick-Ass with Nicolas Cage, who was in Gone in 60 Seconds with Angelina Jolie, who was in Wanted with Morgan Freeman, who was in Million Dollar Baby with Hilary Swank, who was in The Next Karate Kid with Pat Morita, which is a five-stepper. And there's a few okay. more. Uh, we've got, uh, this is from our own Laszlo Buckets, and this is, Dear Britt, I have an Arkansas answer for you. Chloe Grace Moretz was in Kick-Ass with Nicolas Cage, who was in Leaving Las Vegas with Elizabeth Shue, who was in Karate Kid with Pat Morita. Of course. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> a little sneaky three-stepper. And some good films there as well. Leaving Las Vegas is sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, so this is from Utah Smith, and he said, I'm getting there, but it's taking all of my powers, and I've managed to get Mark Dacascas in there as well. <laughs> God, is that going to be the next step of these? Like, we have to do it from one person to another, but via someone else. Well, like like a super arc in Star, where you have to like yeah. almost like tag tag someone on the way, high five someone on the way past. <laughs> yeah. uh, Pat Morita was in Only the Brave with Mark Dacascas. It was in John Wick John Wick Three with John Leguizamo, who was in Kickass Two with Glowy Grace Moretz. So that's another three stepper. So Laszlo and Utah drawing there, and this is the last one. And um, this is actually off my dad, who had a crack, and it is a good one. It is Chloe Grace Moretz was in Kickass with Mark Strong. Uh, which takes us to Robert Downey Jr. via the Sherlock movies, uh, who was in Only You with Marissa Tamai, <laughs> uh, who was in My Cousin Vinny with Ralph Macchio. Oh, come on! Uh, <laughs> which takes us to Pat Morita and Karate Kid, which is another five-stepper. So, yeah, it's so Laszlo and Utah had three-steppers. How did you do, Rupert? Uh... Not as well as some, although I will say I always do these without reference to other materials. So that will okay. perhaps explain why this is five steps. <laughs> um, so obviously Pat was in Karate Kid with Martin Cove or Covey. You know, anyway, he was in yeah, VFW yeah. with Stephen Lang. Bloody brilliant film. Um who was in Tombstone with Val Kilmer, nice. who was in Bad Lieutenant with Nicolas Cage, who was in Kick-Ass with Chloe. Nice. He was portly in Bad Lieutenant, wasn't he? Nicolas Cage? No. Uh, Val Kilmer. He had blonde hair. Yeah. He's yeah. blonde and ruddy in that film. That's what I remember. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know he's a very ill man now, but there was definitely a, oh, yeah. a, 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 a moment in his career where he just started to look like a middle-aged woman almost with like the long hair and stuff and he started to take that sort of turn but um yeah Nick, so that was five remember, steps that was five steps i, nice. I did i need to watch that film again actually because I, I did like that it's so buzzing how badly he damaged it. i did, and the way it happens off screen after such an innocuous jump yeah but, uh, and it's just such severe consequences for it's, him. it's right at the start as well isn't it because that's the whole thing is like he's just addicted to painkillers after that yeah but, um, because if you remember, yeah, there's a few scenes in that film, I don't know if you can recall them, where he um, he goes into a chemist and says, have you got any Nurofen Plus? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, as a surprise, Rupert, because it's our 50th, 50th um, episode, yeah. I've, put to, I've put together a quiz for you. And I, I know that you claim, you claim to be a fan of Stanley Kubrick. And I... You know, I, I'm just going to challenge that a little bit and ask you some questions that, because am I right in thinking you've actually written a book about this? Did I dream that? I have written a book. I've written a dissertation about Stanley Kubrick as well. That's yeah. what I wrote my dissertation on. So really, there's no excuses. I mean, it's been a while since I've read a book about Kubrick. It's been a while since I watched a Kubrick movie. Not that I'm making excuses for my failure at this quiz beforehand. Or anything. <laughs> Thirty seconds of just um. Oh yeah. Other thing is. Oh, and you know, I had that accident where I hit my head yeah, and lost just, all of my Stanley Kubrick knowledge. Just deleted that particular knowledge of transatlantic filmmaker. So here we go. I'll make a note of your score. I'm not going to tell you um which how much each question is worth or how how I'll tell you if you got it right or wrong, but I won't tell you mm-hmm. how many points you've got. Okay. Okay. 
<coughs> now, okay, here we go. So this is the 50th Kino Kingdom episode Stanley Kubrick quiz. Mm. And this is question one. Which of these is a real quote from Nicole Kidman about Stanley Kubrick? His, his feet were problematic. It was worse if it was a long stifling day and he had kicked his shoes off. Sometimes you could see crew members' eyes watering <clears throat> or us all having to do retakes because someone had gagged and it was picked up by one of the microphones. Whenever he came up to me to give direction on set, I'd instinctively take a step back. Once I looked up and Tom Cruise was silently laughing as Stan leaned into me to point at the script. I gagged and I saw Tom Cruise mouth the words, they smell like gas, don't they? Honestly, once I almost went, it was lucky I wasn't hung over that day. Right. Or did Nicole Kidman say, I miss him. He was incredible talent and had a lovely set of bollocks on him and all. But he called them his Sandras because bullock sounds like bollock. Or did she say, Stanley Kubrick told me that the world is run by paedophiles. So which of those do you think is a quote, a real quote from Nicole Kidman about Stanley Kubrick? Well, they all sound quite likely. It's tough, isn't it? I made this a tough quiz. Mm. There's only about four questions, I think. But, you know, you, it's the quality, not the quantity. I mean, he did spend a lot of time standing up. So it's got to be the feet one, I think. Oh, wrong, Rupert. Oh. Um, it's actually, the world is run by paedophiles is a genuine <sighs> quote. Jesus. So you, haven't any, you haven't got any points there. OK, so this he, is... What, what was his theory that they were? It was a paedophile ring being run out of the basement of a pizzeria. That's I, a popular I, choice. I I haven't spoken to Nicole Kidman about it, so I oh, didn't right, get okay. any more than that. Um, so this next question, question two, is: Do you know the name of Kubrick's home? No. <laughs> the simple answer. I know it's oh, in Hertfordshire. <clears throat> Oh, well, you know, well, no, that was that was worth a quarter of a point, And that was Childwick Spree Man. I thought you'd get that. Jesus. So for the rest of the point, can you tell me the exact wording of the advertisement for the manor when Kubrick bought it? The exact wording for the what, sorry? The, the advertisement that for the actual manor house when he oh, bought right. it. So every single word on the... On the description that drew him to the house, yeah. Um... Uh, it's bloody lovely here, lovely here. And you wrote a dissertation. Of birds, fantastic weather. Come and live here, I, Stan. You, you're not even close. It's actually the manor house, mainly 18th century, has 12 reception rooms, 18 bed and dressing rooms, 11 staff bedrooms and 10 bathrooms, immaculate timber grounds, walled garden, courtyard with garaging and flat, estate office, Victorian dairy house with about 19 acres, two coach house cottages with magnificent stable yard with paddock and woodland, 16 acres, Cheapside and Shafford farms, two well-equipped corn and stock farms with about 724 acres, 146 acres of Timberland Park, 37 acres of railed paddock and 104 acres of valuable commercial timber. In addition, there were 18 attractive houses and cottages, some with paddocks, old mill and other buildings for conversion, stud buildings, 30 loose boxes, potential riding school and fishing in River Ver and Mill Race. That was close then. Yeah, I mean, I, you wrote a dissertation on him, you say, and you don't 
None of this yeah. is, is coming back. Um, well, okay, the next question is, there was a stud, as included in the above statement that I just said, there, there was a stud farm that was originally part of the property. So uh-huh. Stanley Kubrick purchased the manor house, but who purchased the rest of the property when it was split? Um... Christian Kubrick. No, the stud farm was sold to the Marquesa de Morataya. So you weren't close there either. My this second is choice a... is going to be Leon Vitali, by the way. That would have been a good guess. <laughs> the next question, um, and this is a really easy one. Can you name Stanley Kubrick's directorial debut? Documentary or feature film? Whichever you think. The earliest thing he ever did, his earliest directing credit. His earliest feature film was Fear and Desire. Right. Which, which is wrong, by the way, so, you know. Okay. What, so his you, earliest, the earliest thing he ever had credit for, for directing. Oh. Uh, it'd be a documentary. He did one called, what's it called? The Seafarer or something like that. It was called Day of the Fight, Rupert. Uh, oh, so right, yeah, he did that. He got that wrong. Well, well, actually, he did make a couple of documentaries before that, but... Oh, here we go. Here we go. Day okay. of the Fight was... Yes, Day of the Fight was a documentary about a boxer, which he then adapted into a feature film called Killer's Kiss. You finished? You finished working your way around the uh, the wrong answer now? Because, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is for a quarter of a point. This is a two-part question. Can you name the cinematographer of The Shining? Is it... Is his name Barry Alcott or something? Oh, I'll give you that. It's John Alcott. So that's John a quarter Alcott, of the... Yeah, the, yeah Barry... The, the editor was named Barry, I think. Well, I knew that, obviously. I just didn't <laughs> want to say anything. So for the re- remaining three quarters of that point, John Alcott, the cinematographer of The Shining, can you name his dad? Um, Jeremiah Alcott? Uh, Arthur. Arthur Alcott. Oh. So... So hang on, let me just make a note of your score so far, right? Okay, and this is the final question. <coughs> Which of these is a genuine quote from Stanley Kubrick? One, show me a man who puts on a show of showing no fear, and I'll show you my ass. <laughs> Two, my wife can't cook for shit. I always end up chucking dinner in the bin on the shush and then ordering a Chinese delivered to my bathroom window and I eat it while I'm sitting on the bog and laughing. Then, if she locks the door and says, Stan, are you okay? What's that food smell and why are you laughing? If I hum at a certain note, it freezes time and I only unfreeze it when I finish my Chinese. The only problem is that I age while everything else stops. I have to stop doing it now as filming Eyes Wide Shut. I'm only 19 years old and yet I look like John Reese Jones. Or three, the very meaninglessness of life forces man to create his own meaning 
Children, of course, begin life with an untarnished sense of wonder, a capacity to experience total joy at something as simple as the greenness of a leaf. But as they grow older, the awareness of death and decay begins to impinge on their consciousness and subtly erode their joie de vivre, their idealism and their assumption of immortality. As a child matures, he sees death and pain everywhere about him and begins to lose faith in the ultimate goodness of man. But if he's reasonably strong and lucky, he can emerge from this twilight of the soul into a rebirth of life's elan, both because of and in spite of his awareness of the meaninglessness of life he can forge a fresh sense of purpose and affirmation he may not recapture the same pure sense of wonder he was born with but he can shape something far more enduring and sustaining the most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile but that it is indifferent if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death however mutable man may be able to make them our existence as a species can have genuine meaning and fulfillment however However vast vast the the darkness we provide our own light yes so you think you could go with three for that, you? I will. That was a Playboy interview. Yep, that's so out of that, you had one and one quarter points. So well done, Rupert. Brilliant. Maybe maybe go back and have a, just a quick read through of your dissertation yeah. for, that, for the hundredth episode Kubrick quiz. Clearly all of those details were in there, so it's completely <laughs> so, relevant. Um, yeah, and, and uh, it's over to you now, Rupert, for the um, the hundred year film and your segue into uh, this first review of the week. Yeah. So Nosferatu is 100 years old. Well, it was 100 years old on the 4th of March because um, it was released in 1922. It was um, directed by F.W. Murnau, who's a German director. Um, and it is actually an unauthorised adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is why the guy in it is named Count Orlock instead of Dracula. And of course, he was memorably played by Max Schreck, because um, even if you haven't seen the film, you would have seen the kind of image of him creeping up the stairs in shadows sort of thing. Mm, yeah. Max Schreck is literally the name of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns, by the way. Which is good. That is Which a is good fine. thing. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. So it's um, Nosferatu. It's a German expressionist film. And this was like a movement in film history. And. It. it to put it in context, at the time there was an expressionist movement in all of European art. And expressionism just means it's basically an artwork which portrays the world in a distorted or unreal way to express some kind of emotion. And in the case of German expressionism, bearing in mind that Germany was a broken country, like between world wars, those emotions were very angsty, paranoid, full of dread. So, and before Nosferatu, you had stuff like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Robert Wiener's film. And and in that, it's like you get all these crooked buildings and these angular shadows to represent the madness of the characters. So that's cool. But um, actually, Murnau did end up going to Hollywood and he made a film called Sunrise, which I recommend to everyone as well, which it's like the most... Considering how dark and gloomy like Nosferatu is, Sunrise is like the most insanely positive and sunny film you ever see. But like, it's like his work is way ahead of stuff that Hollywood was putting out at the time in terms of like camera movements and stuff and framing and just actually looking like a film and not just like a stage play which is being filmed. If you see what I mean. Yeah. And but Nosferatu is absolutely landmark in the history of film especially horror and of course it predates any of the universal horror output um 
although it did clearly influence Universal in terms of lighting and pacing and plotting. And then I suppose gothic horror goes in and out of fashion, but you could chart a course really from German Expressionism through Universal, through Hammer Horror, and right through to Tim Burton, whose 1989 Batman is basically a German Expressionist film. So it's full of oppressive shadows and unnatural lighting and these this fearsome looming arch- architecture and of course batman is really a vampire himself sort of emerging at night to feed upon gotham's iniquity which brings us to batman the batman which i watched in the cinema nice ah. it's written and directed by matt reeves who's who last made war for the planet of the apes which was an exceptionally good blockbuster and yeah, so he's kind of in the category of like, I suppose, uh, Denis Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan, who are flying the flag for big budget, but artistically credible like tentpole films with a an auteur's touch, shall we say. So the Batman is set in year two of the, his career, of Batman's career. And he's he's already working with Gordon. Um Guess what would he be? Detective Gordon? Who was who was he played by? Um, Jeffrey Wright. And right. uh, which more on that later because it's it's really cool casting. But anyway, he's so he's working with Gordon, but he's untrusted by the rest of the cops because possibly because so many of those cops are corrupt and therefore quite afraid. So there's a serial killer doing the rounds. He's shrouded in the dark web and um, he's targeting powerful people, VIPs. Um, and, and it's on the conspiratorial basis that basically corruption is infecting every layer of Gotham society. Kind of going back to the Pizzagate thing we mentioned earlier, really, he's convinced that, you know, that, that corruption goes right through the system. So Batman teams up with Selina Kyle, a cat burglar, to take down this dastardly Riddler. And um, so, that yeah. It's a, it's a slow, methodical detective thriller, I would oh, say. Thank God. It's thank got, God. It's got pockets of action and it clocks in at about three hours, but it doesn't feel like it, to be honest. Um it in terms of where the kind of where the kind of look and feel comes from from the comic books, I'd say it's like year one combined with elements of the long Halloween, which is fine because they're two of my favourites, so good. Oh, yeah. So you have this kind of inexperience factor, which means that his encounters are quite tense because Batman is quite physically fallible. He will take a few punches and he's naive and he's overconfident and not quite scared enough yet. And then you've got this epic crime element, which is pretty complex and deep, and it really brings colour to the world that it's, he's inhabiting. Um, I mean, Tim Burton and Christopher Nolan, they had their own vision of Batman, which is fair enough. But for me, this one's closest to the modern day graphic novels I've read because he's basically a grumpy detective occasionally getting into a scrape and then retreating to his cave to brood for a bit. And it does require concentration, not just to follow the plot, but also because there's some crucial dramatic moments that are very subtle and ambiguous that make you want to watch it again. Some aspects I wasn't sure about until I thought about them afterwards, like throughout it it's like batman and bruce wayne are kind of indistinguishable they don't have that contrast that you're used to but the reason for that 
you realize afterwards is, is actually quite clever and brilliant and it does tie the whole film together so that's cool i think there's a couple of minor missteps towards the end where there's a bit of telegraphing for the sequel but then i realized that one of the actors is who's being set up for the sequel is barry keown who we oh, admire oh no not barry <laughs> Uh, who's brilliant so and he improves everything so i'm fine with that um there's there is some pretty heavy exposition towards the end but i think that's expected in a mystery movie which is essentially what this is and crucially there's never there's never people explaining why to each other why they feel the way they do so the, the production design sits somewhere between like the art deco of tim burton's vision and the neo-noir of nolan and i think it looks amazing uh and the cast really surprised me. Um, uh, Catwoman, what's her name? Kravitz, something? Zoe Kravitz? Zoe Kravitz, that's it. Yeah. She's, I've always found her a little bit dull and pouty, but she she's really good here. Uh, John Turturro isn't the most naturally threatening man, but he's really scary in this. Jeffrey Wright is perfect as Gordon because he has this kind of world weariness about him. But as an actor, he has this very natural geniality like kind of trustworthy eyes so it's really cool and then there's robert pattinson of course who's effectively got to play this part as a grumpy old git who's motivated by spite and that somehow makes it a bit more engaging and he's he spends virtually all his time as batman so a lot of the emotional heavy lifting is from behind the cowl so it's all through the eyes and i think he does a really good job i I like how Matt Reeves knows we know all about Batman's backstory and doesn't need to show it all again. Doesn't need to show his parents getting killed, none of that crap. It's like, okay, we know who he is. Um, we've kind of got it in our collective cultural memory, if you like. And I, I like how the film is a reflection of our times, especially in America. So it, it touches on like systemic corruption, as I mentioned, and also conspiracy theorizing. And also... On top of that, this well-intentioned but misguided activism. So that's cool. I, I suspect that each character, in fact, might represent some element of our tribalized society, but I'll leave that for another day. So it's really dark and depressing, Good. way more than Nolan sequels, sequels even. But it does have this deeply hopeful edge, which is embodied in certain core characters. Um, Mark Kermode reckons that Christopher Nolan's trilogy is like the zenith of what's possible in comic book movies. And he thinks it's the definitive Batman. I personally disagree. I think Nolan's trilogy was half a great trilogy, but it kind of started collapsing in the third act of um, The Dark Knight for me. And it never really recovered. And I think if... Matt Reeves has a serious vision for his trilogy because this is intended as a trilogy. Oh, nice. And and I think if he can continue to avoid any kind of tiresome fan service and he can stick to meticulously crafted storytelling and relevant themes and this very oppressive gothic mood, I think he can create the definitive Batman trilogy that Burton was never allowed to do and, frankly, Christopher Nolan fluffed. So... I'd say this is, it's close with Batman Begins, which I've very much enjoyed, but I think this is my favourite of the modern Batman movies. Very good. Nice. Mm -hmm. 
um, just one thing. When you said um, there's obviously a lot of exposition in mystery films, is there a sequence then in in the Batman where towards the end Robert Pattinson sort of gathers everyone together and then falls down a staircase, gets his hand wedged in like a suit of armor, and then starts swinging around a mason, demolishes a grand piano, while everyone like calls him a buffoon. Well, I, we don't do spoilers on this podcast. Oh, yes, on my mistake. And the other thing is, this is I noticed this I, uh, yesterday, <clears throat> um, tying back into the German Expressionism, where yeah. you mentioned the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm. I, I own, or rather my son owns, a book, um, which is a sort of uh, novelized version, a child's novelized version of an episode of the real Ghostbusters from the early 90s. Right. And it is called The Cabinet of Calamari. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm holding it in my yeah. hands now. I just I remembered to do a chat in, so I picked that up. So yeah, the Batman then. So that's that sounds good. And to be honest, that really does sound like the Batman film I've because yes. we, we always talked about like in another uh, character I've always liked is is Wolverine, and we've always said that you know the start of the Wolverine. Why couldn't it just be him in the woods wandering yeah. around for two hours sulking? I would be, and then of course it, the film takes a turn and gets gradually worse. But then this sounds like it is the Batman that, you know, this this sort of deeply cerebral brooding Batman that we've all wanted without these like ridiculous set pieces. Yes. Or, or explaining the backstory one more time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, really it just feels it. it just feels rich with stuff. It's like rich with atmosphere and rich with plot, rich with characterization. It's just a really nicely balanced film. And. And good action scenes, good action scenes, but not showy action scenes quite brutal it's a kind of bizarre car chase sequence which which is almost feels like it's filmed in a really odd way almost unintelligible in a way but weirdly thrilling because of just the just almost the surreal choice of shots and editing and the sound design is just unbelievable it's really, really visceral. But yeah, really enjoyed it. And Paul Dano's in it as well, and he's someone that always... Yeah, I didn't mention him. Is. He's obviously amazing and everything, so... Yeah. yeah. It's so, almost just a given. Yeah. yeah. I, he's yeah. properly threatening, like, his character, but it's a very amusing reveal quite near the end where it totally, like, punctures his mystique in a very amusing way. The, the humour's very, very subtle, but I found it actually quite laugh out loud funny at times even though they're literally no real jokes is it sort of like the um computer chess sort of humor where everything's so subtle that it just really stands out and makes a mark yeah like yeah just like it's like it's implicit humor it's not it's not like kind of nodding or winking humor Mm, good yeah um, well, I'll move on to my first film of the week then, which is a, a dreadful one called The Misfits. Uh, okay. It's on Amazon Prime and it's directed by Rennie Harlan. Um, Rennie now, Cutthroat Island Harlan. I've actually watched two of his films this week uh, for the first time. It's, this is this is just a quick two minutes. This is an, a heist film, uh, like I said, directed by Rennie Harlan and starring uh, Pierce Brosnan as sort of a... You know, he, he basically breaks out of prison and Tim Roth is after him. Tim Roth doing his absolute worst, most phone in. All right, love. I, I shepherd's pie character in a while. Um, Cause he Tim can Roth be really good. Any accents. No, like, he's, he's even just doing own. a British accent. He's doing this. He's, he's just speaking normal in this, but 
it's like he every time they say right action he just like he basically is there to sort of turn up after something has happened and say oh blimey oh oh no and then move to the next scene it is one of the laziest films i've ever encountered and it's also got that irritating uh sort of self-awareness that it thinks it's cool like it's Mm. the whole thing is about the misfits of this bunch of people who are sort of build as a sort of modern day Robin Hood where they, they you know, rib, rob from the rich and give to the poor not, and keep nothing for themselves, which is quite ridiculous considering the lifestyles they lead, quite frankly, and I do not believe it. Um, and it just does this comic book freeze frame introduction of like, you know, the guy called Wick who's, you know, great with bombs and he always runs his hands through his head before an explosion. And then you've got the, pow- the a pouty Asian woman who like is a martial artist. And they just introduce all these like really sort of stock characters. And then they, 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 for some reason, bent on recruiting Pierce Brosnan for this this newest heist, which is just to steal gold that's hidden in a false laundry room of a prison. Mm. And I was watching this all come together, and it was only when the film finished I thought, they didn't need Pierce Brosnan for that. Like, he brought nothing to the table apart from putting on a really dodgy Texan accent on the phone at one point, which I would have done if they'd give me a ring. And and they, they was, they was, I was realising, as the film went on, it was really flashy and empty. But it's like they introduce everyone who has these sort of special skills and then they're used for like the briefest of moments um as almost an afterthought as the plot just kind of boringly just trundles along um and also and sometimes with these films you know you you can put up with a lot if the heist is good Mm. and it's just one of those things where the heist just sort of happens and it's just Pardon me, seems pretty poorly planned. And also, so they go through, they, they meet up, they plan this for days, this heist. And then yet, when the heist happens and people are doing something, they still look at each other and saying, what are you doing? You must be crazy. And I thought, well, but this has been planned, hasn't it? Yeah. So don't react as if it's just happening at that moment, because you obviously know what that person was going to do. It's part of this plan. And yeah, it's really sentimental and awful. And I, I, I think at the end, it sets itself up for a sequel that just does not need to happen. Is this so, a new film? This is 2021. Yeah, this is a Bloody this hell. is brand new on Prime, and yeah, it it is. Uh, I've seen Pierce Brosnan in a handful of these pretty bad films over the last five or six years. Not mm. like he's actually acting, so he, he's he's above he's <laughs> he's top tier Bruce Willis, but the films are dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Didn't Rennie Harlan direct Die Hard too as well? I just imagine yes. that. Yeah. Yeah, which was decent. That's a fine film. Fine. Die Hard Two is a good film. Yeah. Um, can I double up with my other Rennie Harlan film, if that's cool? Yeah. <clears throat> so this, I watched Skip Trace, which is 2016, so it's a few years before uh, the other one. And this is a buddy cop action comedy, which I like. It's a genre mm-hmm. I like. Um, and it stars Johnny Knoxville and Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan okay. is uh, a Hong Kong detective who is after after Johnny Knoxville's character, character because he's... I think he's a, either witnessed a murder at a casino or robbed a casino, I forget. Um, but... but this film is actually pretty decent. He's, Johnny Knoxville is just a, a sort of roguish American gambler. Um, and it's a real sort of knockabout comedy because I think Jackie Chan produced this. Rennie Harlan directed it. And it's a far, far better film than The Misfits because they have a level of chemistry, which is sometimes just all you need for these films to work, really. And it, it just takes them on this ridiculous like road trip through like Siberia, um, Mongolia, 
uh, Hong Kong, and, and it's just preposterous, uh, preposterous places, or beautiful places as well. And you get a lot of a sense of the culture, like they're forever running through these weird festivals. And you know, at one point, mm. um, and Jackie Chan's just explaining them what they are to Johnny Knoxville, and John Knoxville's like, "Do you have a festival for everything?" Um, so it's quite, a, it's, it's lightly funny in some places. It's a weird one because possibly one few, eye on a Chinese audience as well. Yes, very much so. Um, I found it interesting, and I also found it some some parts. They were talking about these these festivals and the, and the the rituals that go on. I was I was actually learning things as well, which is always nice <laughs> when you watch a movie. But th- this is was rated fifteen, and I was trying to work out what it was for the first like half an hour because the violence is really bloodless, and Jackie Chan is you know fair play. He must have been sixty at the time, and he's not missing a beat. I I've not seen a bad Jackie Chan film because I've watched another one, which I'll talk about later on. And but I was trying to work out what it is, and then I realized it's not. It's not the swearing, it's the really misjudged humour. Mm. And I think it's mis I don't think it's misjudged. I think, like you said, it's aimed at international markets where obviously yeah. humour changes from place to place. And there's like um for instance, they don't I don't think there's a single swear word in the film and there's no blood in it. Mm. Uh, and the humour's the action's quite comedic. But they will happily throw in like um allusions to like anal sex. Right. And you think, oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. But it's so you'll, there's, there's some real misfires in terms of the humour, but there's enough of chemistry between them. And it's quite a beautiful film. And like so you see so much of that part of the world that it, it you, you do feel like they're on this this journey and Johnny Knoxville's just taking loads of pratfalls and having the shit kicked out of him all the time, which is quite funny. Yeah. Um, and there are some actually funny moments. So Skip Trace, possibly the last great Rennie Harlan film. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so. I might actually watch that, but that's on Prime, I take it. Yes, yeah. Um, something that was on Prime but is now gone. I will talk about next. Okay. Um, although it is only one ninety nine to rent on Prime, so it's worth it. Um, is dragged across concrete. That sounds nasty. Yeah. This is isn't, a, isn't this directed by someone else you've watched yes. the film of recently? Yes. Okay. Sorry. This is it's made in twenty eighteen. It's a, like a neo noir cop thriller from S. Craig Zayler. The one who made Bone Tomahawk. Oh, nice. And one of my favourite films, good. What was the... He did the prison one as well. Cell Block 99 or whatever it was. Anyway. Which also had, been, uh, which had Vince Vaughn. Um, so, basically, the story is this guy comes out of prison, goes home to find his mother is a prostitute. He has a close <laughs> relationship with his little brother, who's in a wheelchair. Um, so he's got people to support basically so he goes straight back into the into the the business as a driver vince vaughn and mel gibson are these grim cynical cops don johnson is their weary chief lieutenant good good everyone does he looks does he look fantastic yeah but everyone good. in the film is just totally weary of the world it's funny <laughs> um so anyway um this a civilian gets a cell phone video of one of mel and vince's raids and it's police brutality. You get six weeks suspension, unpaid. Now, Mel and his family live in a rough neighbourhood and his wife has MS and they want to get out. And he's struggling with his teenage daughter. So he decides to go rogue off the books, so to speak. And he's he's just dismayed at his situation, basically. He's an old school cop. He's hated in a increasingly pc world and he's underpaid 
um, and he just wants to get out of there. Meanwhile, Vince, he has to pay for his wedding. So they decide to go rogue and they want to get appropriate compensation for their efforts, possibly by taking down some bank robbers. So anyway, so they track these bank robbers from the from the point of the crime out of town. And it's all building up to a violent confrontation anyway. Um, in the meantime, we get a lot of character development from the two cops and the getaway drivers and and the, the main gang. They're pretty stone cold and nasty. So it's really just about the, the drivers and these two cops. The, the dialogue is quite heightened. It's almost poetic. It's uh, and that's consistent with the whole aesthetic, really, because with the lighting and the performances, it feels very controlled and deliberately unnatural. And it's beautifully shot. The pacing in the atmosphere, very deadpan, and the black humour, it's all very reminiscent of Killing Them Softly. Remember that? The Andrew Dominic film, which is that very dark noir film. And With, with Richard Jenkins being yes. a pro. And, and I suppose these sorts of neo-noirs, I guess they're kind of a natural progression from the likes of Dirty Harry, French Connection, and To Live and Die in L.A., best film in the 80s, um, so which which themselves were a progression from the noir of the 40s and 50s, I suppose. So, but now it's like, it's like these old school cops bending the rules. They're just dinosaurs. They're just sad dinosaurs, really. Um, so Great band, by the way, great band, sad dinosaurs. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, Mel and Vince, they're old school, but they're not cool. They're actually fairly pathetic. And the dividing line between necessarily bending the rules and becoming full on criminals is just non-existent. And it, it seems to be saying if we can accept that cops can break the rules because their personal circumstances mean they deserve a little more. Then why not robbers? At the same time, I mean, it's the same situation either side of the law. And I mean, it, at the end of the day, the guy who's come out of prison actually has a greater claim to being a decent person in the end. The the bank robbery itself is quite amusingly done. It's all very deadpan. And I like how <laughs> it's just amusing touches, like character touches, like Mel Gibson's characters constantly like calculating a percentage chance of success on every decision. So that was quite amusing. And the final, con even the final confrontation is slow paced. The whole thing is slow paced. It's and it gives it this horrible tension, especially because like the violence. I mean, it's not it's not as grotesque as something like Bone Tomahawk, but it is the violence is very sudden and and deliberately undramatic. It's like deadpan violence, really. Uh, it's it's not really a very rewatchable one, much like Killing Them Softly, because it's too slow paced and the comedy is. It's very dry, uh, but I definitely think it's worth a watch. Uh, it's an interesting film and good performances from the two main leads. So and and again, quietly funny, but very, very blackly deadpan funny. I will watch this because weirdly mm. only a couple of days ago, I was, I was thinking about Bone Tomahawk and how much I liked it and mm. wondering what that director got up to. And has he done anything since that? So I'm guessing he did Dragged Across Concrete. Has he done any others? I'm not sure what he's done since because he did Bone Tomahawk. Then he did Cell, I'm sure it's called Cell Block 99. That was Vince Vaughn like, kicking the shit out of people in prison. And then he did <laughs> this. 
Not sure. I'll find out while you move on to your next film. Which is Cop Shop, another Amazon Prime golden movie starring Jared Butler and Frank Grillo and Alexis Lauder. This so was... interesting because this is one of mine as well, so we can both talk about this. Oh, nice. nice. Well, this is directed by Joe Carnahan. And when it popped up on screen, I paused the film because that sounded so familiar. And I realized he had also done, I'm just looking at the, he has done a series of pretty of films that I've really disliked. Um, <laughs> Smoke and Aces, I didn't mind because I like films based around gambling and cards. So I like that because of the, the sort of well, what it was based on. But then he's done the A-Team, he did Stretch, he's done the Death Wish remake, he's done Point Blank, not that one or that one, Bad Boys for Life. Boss level, which I turned off and didn't even bring up on the podcast, I don't think. And that starred Frank Grillo. <laughs> that and, I, and, and so when I looked at this, I looked at his name on the screen and thought, <sighs> shall I continue? And I did. And I'm kind of glad I did because, um, yes, um, I'll let you I'll let you describe the, the plot because you do that better than I do. But I, I, so I'll talk with you. But I just wanted okay. to say that with some serious caveats, especially towards the end. <laughs> Yes. I, I um I did enjoy this. I did enjoy yes. this film. Uh, so ostensibly it's about a con artist played by Frank Grillo who gets himself arrested for safety. And then a hitman played by Gerald Butler gets himself arrested so he can kill Frank Grillo. But then a third, even more psychotic villain played by Toby Toby Huss comes along to cause all sorts of mayhem. And in the middle of all this is there's this good cop played by Alexis Lauder who's trying to work out who to trust, especially when it she gets injured and needs someone to save her life. Um, when And when all her colleagues are murdered. Uh, and yeah, that's really the plot. It's just it's pretty much like a. A one location type job, isn't it? So, I, yeah, when when they introduce when they take Frank Rollo and his ridiculous hair down to the the cell, yeah. and there's that sort of slow pan out, and I thought, yeah, this is clearly where most of the action is going to take place in this yeah. room, and I was quite glad of that because I, yeah. I like those sort of stagey films. Yes, I yeah, I, I think I'm probably with you on this one that it's like it's not a good film as such but it is kind of enjoyable in a late 90s tarantino wannabe kind of way if you see what i mean like it's preposterous yeah um and the action is mostly okay although i found the final shootout pretty terrible because it's got loads of like cgi fire and like loads of just excessive slow-mo the dialogue I found it was occasionally amusing, amusingly irre- irreverent, but mostly it was a bit smart-ass. And of course, yeah. you try and do this stuff, it never quite reaches Tarantino standards and it really stands out. <laughs> it's just don't even try, perhaps. Yeah. There are hints of Assault on Precinct 13, but obviously it has none of that film's efficiency or its dark horror movie intensity because it it doesn't dare to take itself seriously in any way, which is probably wise. Yeah. It's almost like it's always, it's afraid to do anything. It's, it's always got the fallback of, Oh, you know, it's only a bit of fun. Yeah. It's just a joke. Sort of thing, yeah. Um, I really, Toby Huss's character tickled me um, when he turns up because he, he just like injects something into it when the film yeah. needed it. 
but he's proper yeah. bonkers in it. And I, I, always, I like Toby Hutz in in anything. And uh, m- maybe people can't picture him. He's the dad in the latest Halloween reboot, and he was the boss in Holton and Catch Fire, which is a brilliant TV show, and he was great in that. But he's he's always good, and he's just completely bonkers in this. And I do think it it invigorates the film. Because it really does take, it pushes it over the edge. It's almost like it's, that's the jump in the shark moment, really. Because it's like, right, okay. Whatever we could take seriously before, now it's just ridiculous. Yeah. But like I said, the closer it gets to the end, and and like the dialogue in the final 20 minutes, and like Mm. everything, the dialogue, the the shots, the the musical cues, the narrative, the way it kind of ends, everything, I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, just stop now. Yes. And and I really felt like the film could have easily been like 10, 15 minutes shorter. That, yeah, there's a kind of epilogue, isn't there, which is just, oh, just stop it now. It could have ended 10 minutes ago and we're still going for no particular reason. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's okay <laughs> it's better than boss level which i did watch oh, yeah. all of so oh really now. did it get better or not? no no it was terrible boss oh, level was the it was like the groundhog day action movie it's like you know a film is bad when you don't want to just look at frank grillo because <laughs> you can just look at frank grillo because he's 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 such a like a commanding presence and and so weirdly hunky so yeah but that was poor but this is better than that it's very watchable yeah. and it's like utterly mindless it's a one and done isn't it it's yes. like yeah you watch it and think oh, i had a bit of you know that was a good that was a good way to spend an evening boom done yeah yeah so so what have you got next recommendation uh i have what do i have texas chainsaw massacre which is on which netflix one? Well, no, this is a reboot. Uh, hang on, is it a reboot? I can't remember. No, it's a sequel. <laughs> like, let me explain this. Okay, because the chronology of this franchise is insanely convoluted. So, there was the original quadrilogy between 1974 and 1995, and then right. there was a reboot in 2003, and then that had a prequel in 2006. Then there was a direct sequel to the 1974 original in 2013. And then there was a prequel to the 1974 original in 2017. With me so far? No. So anyway, this is a direct sequel to, again, to the original 1970s film. So this is a new film, 2022. Yes, it is. So these young people... This group of an irritating, irritating young people arrive in this grim ghost town in Texas. Um, and there are lots of poor tents along the way, you know, by unpleasant locals at gas stations, etc. Um, so the group is led by Dante, this guy. And he's what he's doing is he's, he's looking to basically revitalize this little town and gentrify it and bring young people here to kind of revitalize it um and they also plan to live there themselves so it's quite an unlikely premise as it is and and it obviously causes rifts between this group of hip youngsters when they 
see just how disgusting and like crumbling this place is and, like at the very start they they turf out an elderly citizen who then dies in her burly son's arms on the way to the hospital um and we realize that that burly son who's been basically dislodged by these young twats um that son is otherwise known as Leatherface and he is somewhat perturbed that his mother's just died so he returns to the ghost town to slaughter these gentrifiers and and also all of these this huge group of incoming investors so basically it's a load of rich city folk being murdered by a psycho Leatherface guy so they're clearly going for like a Halloween 2018 vibe here because they even wheel out the character from the original film, Sally, from the original movie, who is now obviously an old lady. But now she's like a tough as leather ranger woman with like a who wields a shotgun. Um, it's also like Halloween 2018 insofar as it's unbelievably violent. And and it I suppose it's trying to go for a somewhat playful demeanor. But what it lacks that Halloween had, what it really lacks is the characterization. Uh, because, of course, the cool thing about Halloween 2018 was it introduced, it brought back characters and deepened their kind of nuances and stuff. And But it also introduced new characters that you actually cared about. This does not. This just introduces loads of really irritating characters you don't care about. So instantly just negating any are, are, are the kids at the start, are they like the ones that were just just as infuriating as in, um, what's that film we watched recently? Oh, you know, where they, they turn up at the town and they're supposed to be smug and clever. And that was like, um, that was a reboot or something. Oh, are we talking about it? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah well, it's that sort of thing where it's like, I don't get why. I mean, on one hand, I can see, uh, I can see the value in, having annoying characters that you can kind of delight in them getting murdered, I suppose, you know, in the law of film language. But what I don't understand is having everyone just be utterly irritating and irredeemably annoying. So, and also really quite almost like they're like shallow caricatures on top of that. So there really is no one to root for. So there's no real tension. They just become vessels for inevitable murder sort of thing so um anyway yeah so obviously the 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 kind of awkward naturalistic interplay of the original film is long gone i mean but that was gone by part two anyway so this is just a generic glossy netflix aesthetic here it doesn't really look like a movie it looks like a tv show i mean yeah, like I said, I mean, the original was very naturalistic in style, and that's what made it scary. And also not particularly violent, by the way. But Tobe Hooper then directed the sequel. You know, he directed the first one. He directed the sequel, which is, went in such a different direction, just completely wild comedy direction, which kind of worked because it was just out of contrast. But this just sits in that predictable middle ground of being glossy and... Uh, like having lots of 
trendy young people in it that I don't believe that anyone can actually like or admire. Uh, and just being extremely violent, but without any real fear factor or tension building. So it's just a bad movie, really. You know? Um, mm. So not worth it at all. And I think it's probably just stop flogging this horse, really. Especially as you look at the chronology and it's like, well, where do you start? I well, saying, I know where you should end, which is with this film, frankly. I was just glancing because I was wondering when you were talking about how the chronology of events was. I was looking at the, this film and I, the fact you couldn't even click on David Blue Garcia's name on Wikipedia, the director, was was a warning sign. But mm-hmm. um, I was looking at the fact that they, when they released Leatherface in 2017, Lionsgate lost the rights, but they planned to make five further films in the franchise. Well, why? why mm. so yeah i if you had said oh do you know what this is oh like a bit of fun or works as a standalone film or it's you know it's mm. gone the, like you said the halloween route and, and it's worked but this just sounds like a, I, i'm not watching anymore because i suppose the problem with these like with wrong turn was sounds like it was better than this and more enjoyable but when a reboot of a horror film doesn't work it's you're constantly sort of mentally comparing it to yeah. It's it's predecessors, and so it is almost like you just think I'd just rather be watching that. It yes. doesn't. I mean, Wrong Turn, it, it had very very serious issues. Let's face it, but it it had at least some ambition to something else. To well, it had a wealth of ideas, not all of them good, and it was completely incoherent. But it, it did at least have ideas. This really doesn't. I mean, it's just lazy, and it looks like trash. And he's trash, so don't bother. I won't. Good. But what what you should watch, uh, and it's on Amazon Prime. Well, it was it was on Amazon Prime, and I watched half of it, and then when I went and watched the other half, it wasn't, and then the following day it was. So I don't know what's gone on there. And this is Jackie Chan's 1993 film Crime Story, <clears throat> um, also known as New Police Story, and released in the Philippines as Police Dragon. Um, this is it's it more was a, titles and Godfrey Ho. <laughs> uh, I've got another one with two titles coming up as well, another cat film. Well, actually, this isn't crap, but um, yeah. So this is a serious Jackie Chan film from 1993, uh, based uh, filmed in sort of Hong Kong and Taiwan. It's he's a cop called Eddie Chan who is uh, working to try and get cut, cut down, cut down, cut down on carbs and organized crime, um, and he is sort of partner slash superior is a corrupt man a corrupt man who's also slightly buffoonish um who was involved in the kidnapping of a bit of a real estate tycoon called teddy wang who's who's hated for his the way he treats his workers but obviously they've got to rescue him uh, from this kidnapping because they're the police um so jackie chan is as told the businessman's wife, she's paying so much ransom. Don't pay it because the moment they kind of extort you for as much as they can, they'll just kill him because this has happened many times before. So the best thing to do is to sort of not pay them, make them think we wonder what's going on, and that'll give us time to track him down. And everyone is against Jackie Chan in this thought. They're just like, no, just pay it. He'll come back. Boom, sorted. Not true. Not true, everyone. So, um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting um, pairing of Jackie Chan trying to track down this the kidnappers whilst sort of on the right side of the law whilst his superior who's been partnered with him on the case is clearly corrupt and sort of trying to work against him at the same time um we know from the start that his partner's corrupt um he is a large sweaty man and it's 
sort of goes through that them trying to track it down. They go through they go through Taiwan and shanty towns and through the heart of Hong Kong. And again, it's one of those films that it's it's got that early eighties almost New York vibe where everything's um sort of really artificially lit and everything seems quite staged but in like a really cool way nice, uh, jesse nice. chan's obviously totally on form uh it, it, he's not he's not like um an ass-kicking superhero he, he's obviously like very good at martial arts in this but it's sort of underplayed in that you know after watching him in films like me 20 years later where he's flipping around with perfect acrobatic skill in this he sort of underplays it a little bit you know there's a few mm. slips and falls and slight clumsiness which is quite cool um not to say the action scenes aren't still amazing um and yeah it, it just uh, it's got comedy in it mainly through his slightly buffoonish partner which i don't think stops sweating for a nanosecond in this film <laughs> and there there's um there are some sequences on this where jackie chan f- loses his footing and he has a rough time some of the falls in this film i just thought you're right oh is that it are you dead um but yeah it's it's a re- it's a really good it's not so it's not so much a like it it's not so much a recommendation on the kidnapping crime thriller part of it but just as an action film and it's interesting to see jackie chan play a straight character apparently reading about this afterwards the film was a lot darker and there are kind of hints to it at the start where he's talking to his um his therapist and she sort of hints that he's really troubled but we don't really see that he just seems more determined throughout the film than anything else but mm. i think jackie chan had a say in the editing because of his star quality and he removed a lot of the things that probably would have made the film more interesting because mm. it, he thought it would affect his sort of persona in the eyes yeah. of the public mm. so It'd be cool to see that version one day if if it's kicking around. But yeah, this is still a, this is just a solid Jackie Chan action film. Is it kind of is it a direct sequel to the police story films from the eighties, or is it just a uh, reboot? Because I still haven't seen Police Story because that was no. Jackie Chan's. Oh, um, breakout here. No, I I don't know because you've got Police Story Three Super Cop was released mm. in nineteen ninety two. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how they, to be honest with the, um, with some of these films, it, it, the Asian films I watch, mm. it, uh, the, the, I'm of, often confused by the titles and it's almost like they just, like I watched another one called, um, which I'll talk about later on if we have time, called uh, Armor of God 2 Operation Condor. But it's like, he's got, he's called Jackie in it. Mm-hmm. But then in the original, he's called Asian Hawk. And you're like, is this actually a sequel? Or yeah. just a similar film? And they just been branded. It? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but either way, um, yeah, this is a, a pretty solid film. And it was just nice to see Jackie Chan being serious because I haven't seen any of the films where he plays a serious character. Where's this available? That was on Amazon Prime. Good. And it's listed as New Police Story? No, it's listed as Crime Story. Crime Story. Okay. That sounds good. I haven't watched enough Jackie Chan. Yeah. He's he's a very it, impressive it's, actor. Yeah, I, this is the thing. I've watched three or four of his films over the last week or two, and I, I haven't seen a bad film. Like even mm. even when the films he's in are are bad, like say Rush yeah. Hour Three or whatever, yeah. there's enough in them to make them like bearable, you know. Mm. He was in the Karate Kid remake as well. Reboot. Oh yeah, no. didn't he play the Pat Morita character? Yeah, he was really good in that. The scene where he starts crying in his car about his dead wife. Whew. Interesting. Um, did, you have to, did you have to clear your throat? <laughs> I did. I had to glance away briefly. Um, 
I shall talk about a film on Netflix called The Power of the Dog, which you may know from <laughs> if you listen to Mark Maron's latest podcast with Sam Elliott. Um, Sam Elliott had some choice words about this one, um, <laughs> which I suppose I should address, really. I mean, I, <laughs> he's a... He's quite passionate about how much he thinks this film's a piece of shit, but I I think I liked it more than he did, and also I think he's a bit harsh on it because he, he seems to be suggesting that this is the only perspective on the old West there is, but it's just another perspective, really. It's not, you know, it's, it doesn't remove, it doesn't delete any like John Ford's entire canon or anything like that. It's just a different way of looking at it, anyway. And it's absolutely fine that Jane Campion is a female B from New Zealand and C filmed it in New Zealand because it doesn't make a difference. So anyway, it's set in Montana in 1925 and Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons, good, play brothers who are cowhands and they were raised by this tyrant called Bronco Henry. And now as adults, Benedict is just a bully, basically. He's just a, a bit of a monster, uh, whereas Jesse Plemons' character is a, a very nice man. So Jesse Plemons, uh, is, he ends up marrying Kirsten Dunst's character, and and she she's trying to put her gentle, quite feminine son, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, through medical school. So, yeah, they marry, and the film is then really about the emotional tension and fallout between the two brothers, because obviously Jesse's very happy with his new life, but Benedict Cumberbatch's character is not so happy. He's, well, he's all sorts of things. He's jealous, he's angry. Um, so it's it's sort of a character drama based around that dynamic. I think the power of the dog is from the Bible. It, it, here it refers to this hill overlooking the ranch, and it means different things to different characters. And I suppose it represents moving outside your comfort zone, moving beyond the world that you know and this is something that benedict cumberbatch's character is just incapable of doing really and there's a sense that he's like fearful of impending death bronco henry died around 50 and he's approaching that age and there's this whole thing about benedict's like lack of hygiene it, it never washing never wearing gloves it's like his form of self-harm really anyway uh the, the bit that um Sam Elliott may have been alluding to is that uh, Kirsten Dunst's son turns out to be gay and and he takes the abuse from the cowboys with pride and strength and he's probably the most poised and dignified of any of the characters really um, it's very beautifully directed and framed by Jane Campion and I like how every scene has a purpose because often in these art house dramas you get these long pregnant pauses and characters just gazing into the middle distance but here Every shot, every scene means something, which is cool. Um, and every subtle glance has some kind of relevance. So it all pushes the story onwards. So that's cool. Uh, and I, I'm not always convinced by Benedict Cumberbatch, but I think he's genuinely quite menacing here. And he, the way the way he's just so full of bitterness about his own life and he just takes it out on other people in like really cruel, bullying ways belittling ways but then he meets he has this kind of 
starts this friendship with um with Kirsten Dunst's son the gay guy and it's like okay that, that's when the ambiguity sets in and it's like they actually get on really well and they have this very kind of like emotionally intimate relationship um so it's almost like how he deals with that because it's like a whole part of his personality which is never being activated before it's a really cool musical score by johnny greenwood the radiator guy it's kind of eerie and atonal but then what's cool about it is that gradually throughout the film like these warmer chords will start entering into the mix so it's almost like as we get to know the complexities of the characters better like the the music kind of reflects that so that was a nice touch uh i think the problems are really with the back end of the movie and it gets a bit a bit silly and there's some really really oblique character developments to the point where it ends so ambiguously i I just thought does it need to be this ambiguous because the story is quite simple really i'm not sure it really benefits from that level of ambiguity it feels like a novel that was written many decades ago where an unambiguous ending would have been too risque sort of thing so you know they couldn't say it out loud sort of thing but nowadays you don't really need that i think it would have benefited from um a bit less of that but yeah it's a it's a western in i'd say it's similar to something like oh another andrew dominic film actually uh, the assassination of jesse james it's a bit more conventional than that and doesn't have the same mythic power and of course it doesn't have the nick cave music uh and it doesn't have that film's sudden scary violence more gentle i suppose but it's good nonetheless it does require serious concentration to get the most out of it and but i i think it's a decent film and i think sam elliott is is a bit short-sighted or a bit myopic to suggest that you know it's bad just because it's another perspective um uh, on a, a feminized perspective on the west perhaps but there's space for that you know because there's shitloads of westerns so when you were listening to that that interview with sam elliott did you notice anything about his voice was it crystal clear and bright? <laughs> it was actually really really baritone really slow like his whole voice had been slowed down <laughs> 33 and a third rpm um and to the point where some of it was actually inaudible. So, oh right, okay, yeah. yeah. It it didn't help that um, he was being interviewed by Ted Levine, did it? <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. It's a good interview, and I, you know, I like Sam Elliott. I, I just I think he's right about this one. <laughs> You're so dismissive of it. <laughs> it was the, it was the oh so you know have you seen Power of the Dog and then his response of don't get me started on that piece of shit. What? It's so what, a res- what a response! It's so funny. It's so it's so un PR trained as well because he's like he's basically he completely sorted it and said, but you know Jane Campion's an amazing filmmaker and stuff. Like I love her work. And then he's just saying, what the hell is this woman doing, <laughs> filming and making this movie in New Zealand? Yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, he swore as well. He said the f word at least once in that interview. I think I heard him at least once. Beeped out, yeah. obviously. 
<laughs> um, I'm going to talk about a film that our own Laszlo Buckets recommended to me. It's a few, this is a few months ago I watched this, so my memory is very slightly hazy. But um, and it was a film that I really, really loved. And then last time we did the podcast, I didn't have time. And I'm aware that I've, again, <clears throat> running out of time this time because I've got a few films. So I want to talk about the 2020 science fiction film Underwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Kristen, Kristen or Kirsten? I always do this. I think it's Kristen, isn't it? Hang on. Uh, Kristen, Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, yeah. Uh, Kristen Stewart, Vince Cassell, and John Gallagher Jr. And and slightly problematically, TJ Miller. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is um, it, uh, this is a film it, it's really good to just go in completely blind for because when it starts, <clears throat> it begins and it's just this a tiled... Um, like almost a prison-esque looking sort of locker room and Kristen Stewart's just cleaning her teeth and she's wearing what like sort of just just underwear but like I can't remember if it's like dog tags it's like sort of vaguely military look mm. and I was thinking what's happening and then the whole structure she's in just starts to collapse and again I thought oh so it's like a disaster film and then you find out that obviously they are underwater and everything's flooding and she comes across a few sort of scattered survivors and I thought okay so now it's like a it's a survival movie and the film keeps on just just adding these little these little bits and pieces that sort of really casually just almost change the genre whilst it still remains really tightly focused on its narrative which is just to escape um and i was totally and utterly on board with where this went uh, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of um foreshadowing which which is which is done quite nicely the way the characters interact with each other is it is is realistic and i think have you seen this i have not i do intend yeah. to what i thought you would appreciate about this is that regardless of the dire situation they find themselves in and the losses they've incurred everyone remains professional they it doesn't just get reduced to panic it, like these they've obviously right in this situation and because they're capable and good at their jobs and they that that remains a fact throughout the film and i actually thought of you when i was watching it and that was happening mm-hmm. um tj miller i don't know what it is but i remember he, he irritated me uh, in deadpool and he's then always he irritating yeah yeah, uh, and I only ever seen him in Deadpool, I think. And then he was in this, and I heard his stupid raspy voice. And he's the comic relief, and it it, it sort of works because obviously he's using it as a defense mechanism. But mm. I still wish he just wasn't in the film. Uh, he and I think he's a bit of a t- tinker as well, isn't he? He's done something that makes him a little sausage, but I'm not sure what it is. But um, it, he's uh, he's <clears throat> various things, but it's uh, he's I don't know if it's sexual assault or. Uh, inappropriate behavior but yeah he's a bit of a bit of a sausage i think yeah so it's it's, when he when i heard his voice because i didn't really know he was in it i just thought oh for god's sake john gallagher jr however is someone that elevates films and i'm glad he is in it and he plays a really good part um so yeah i'm not going to talk too much about the plot because part of the fun uh, and, and it was a surprising part of the fun for me don't even look at the wikipedia page in fact just 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 watch it because it takes some turns and i thought all oh, right okay um especially as it approaches the ending where uh, i i really pushed my glasses up my nose <laughs> at one point i thought well cranky moses and give him a little wiggle as well um see it's it's sort of it's a character piece it's small scale um mm-hmm. and it's just it's just people in a seemingly hopeless situation just trying to get from a to b and vincent cassell is in it good good 
Yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. The last yeah. time we saw Vincent Cassell was in that David Cronenberg <coughs> film about Freud. It's quite good in that. Oh, with um, the other one, Viggo Mortensen, yeah. is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is a decent movie. Um, Right, so yeah, that sounds recommended then. Yes, very much so. Where is that available? That, I think, was on Netflix. Okay. Uh, We'll we'll flick back to Prime then, so I can talk about Guns Akimbo. Oh, this is the one with Daniel... Radcliffe, yes. Yes. Uh, This is a 2019 action thriller from... Jason Lee Howden, Lee Howden. He's a New Zealand young chap who also made Deathgasm, whatever that is. Um, so it stars Daniel Radcliffe as this nerdy tech sector loser kind of guy. He trolls someone online uh, and then out of revenge, these thugs come to his flat and they bolt pistols to his hands. Uh, and then he's thrust into this deadly real life game where people go around murdering each other, basically. And it's all filmed by drones and it's streamed online. Um, yeah. So that whole concept is ridiculous. So, yep. Yep. Um, so then it's a chase movie, essentially. Uh, and obviously moving in the direction of Radcliffe, learning to use his guns and kick ass. Um, so. The logic of this online game existing isn't really explored. I mean, the players just seem to be they seem to be running around the real world with complete impunity, with the cops just acting like useless NPCs, really. And, and to the extent that I genuinely wasn't sure for a while whether this was actually meant to be, they were meant to be in a video game, if you see what I mean. Because it's mm. really not that clear because because it doesn't look or act like the real world you're like okay so this might as well be a a video game it's weird i mean daniel radcliffe is quite well cast because he's quite charming and he has good comic timing and he definitely throws himself into the role and there's also samara weaving plays this hit girl on his tail she's like the top dog in this game and (sighs) Yeah, her character has this very specific fear, which is ridiculous, given that her character completely embraces every other form of violence. But then it's like it's like the characterization is like a video game where it's like they have strengths and weaknesses, if you see what I mean. So, yeah, the chase sequences are reminiscent of, you know, it's most coherent, something like Run, Lola, Run, but at the least coherent and most manic, more like Crank. It's one of those modern movies which is very much born of online gamer culture. So, like, see also Mayhem and Shoot 'Em Up. Mm. And but to I be don't honest, like these films. I no, think. no, you won't like this film either. The whole so it's called Schism. This online game, S K Y Z M, obviously. Oh yeah. Um. Yes. And it to be honest, what it mostly reminded me of was Slaughter Race from Wreck It Ralph Two. Which I thought was probably a better pastiche of online gaming, to be honest. Um, and and the whole online techie kind of gamer culture context makes it feel oddly dated already because it's, it's just full of like online culture buzzwords. You remember Line of Duty, that terrible Aaron Eckhart movie? 
Oh God, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like that, this reeks of like an older guy writing a script aimed at younger people. And trying it's to write the dialogue. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure how old this Howden guy is, but put it this way. He started out as a, a visual effects artist over 20 years ago. So he's clearly not the age to be, you know, writing this sort of dialogue and trying to appeal to kids. Like, this is just awful exchanges. Like, I, I had to make a note of one of these exchanges between these goons, right? So one of them says, you doing anything tonight? And the other one says, watching The Walking Dead. And the, and the first one says, oh, that's too violent for me. And then it goes back to the other one who says, but you kill people for a living. It's like, what? That's not funny. That's not a funny exchange. And why why so many lines, you know? Just, yeah, terrible, like, like winking dialogue like that. And the complete disregard for the sanctity of human life. Like, it's ultra-violence is everyday comedy, and all the violence is completely consequence-free. The amount of times the Danarachus just gets shot with, like, um, you know, magnum pistols and stuff in the shoulder and just gets straight up again. It's straight out of the gaming world, obviously. But it also eliminates any tension because it turns the whole thing into a kind of splatter action comedy, essentially. And then on top of that, you remember that? I think we talked about it a few episodes ago when I went through all the Friday the 13th films. Remember that Friday the 13th film where where it keeps cutting away because it's being filmed online and it's being streamed. So it keeps cutting away. Like something will happen, like someone will get killed or injured and it'll keep cutting away to like a crowd of people watching on a monitor going, ooh, or like cheering. It's got all that. It's got all that stuff as well. As if to inform us of how excited we should be about what's happening on the screen. But it's got absolutely no satirical value whatsoever. And then, of course, you've got all the stuff with like when there's a really violent action scene, it'll have like ironic, jaunty music. All the usual stuff like that, which instantly dates it again. And it's like one of those movie which, movies which just aches to be completely wild and anarchic, but actually just ends up being crushingly mediocre and often quite aggravating. So it's pretty terrible, really. It's, I'm not sure because it used to be quite hard to telegraph your films of the week, but it's... <laughs> I think as well. No, on a serious note, is um, Daniel Radcliffe has been in some interesting. He he has a sort of almost um, Elijah Wood esque ability yeah. to like to like eke out these really cool individuals. But this just sounds like a real misfire. I think so. I can kind of see why he'd go for it because it, as with Jason Statham in Crank, where it's like it's his opportunity to do a bunch of batshit crazy stuff. I suppose differences with Jason Statham in that's his bread and butter. With Daniel Radcliffe, he he like Elijah Wood, he's constantly trying to play against type, I suppose, which is to be admired. So I can understand why he went for it, but uh, yes, it is a misfire. It's pretty lame. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to watch that because those yeah. films really, really get on my nerves. The whole, the whole winky smug. Oh, look yeah. how much fun we're having! Is the problem the exact problem I had with that? Yeah, Frank and Rilla look film, how relevant. Look how relevant we are because we're talking about online games, and you like online games, don't you? Don't you, kids? <sighs> oh, 
Um, I, I well, you, it's a perfect lead into a film with multiple titles. Um, okay. I watched, I watched it. It's dreadful. I'm not. There's no, there's no point leading up to to it. It's called A Hitman in London, also known as Skin Traffic. Traffic just spelt with a K, obviously. Um, Why? and this hit. This is a Gary Daniels film from 2015. Uh, I, I watched it with my brother Transvaal, just thinking we would have, um, you know, just a, a Gary Daniels martial artsathon. Um, and I, I'm going to read up the cast to you: Gary Daniels, Mickey Rourke, Eric Roberts, Daryl Hannah, Michael Madsen, Dominique Swain, Alan Ford, and Jeff Fay. Um, Jesus. So it's like quite a cast for a Gary Daniels film. Bear in mind, this is 2015. I, I do not know how this film was funded because it was filmed on an Alcatel mobile phone. And the, the plot, such as it is, is that Gary Daniels is a contract killer, uh, a hitman in London, if you will. And he um, becomes disillusioned because he kills an innocent or some nonsense. And he just starts drinking cans of Foster's and uh, sitting in his living room. Uh, and he gets hassled by some Russian mobsters and ends up almost inadvertently saving like a, like a prostitute den uh, from, from being abused by these guys. Mm. And then Eric Roberts uh, and uh, what's his name? Um, Mickey Rourke yeah. want, want him killed for he's done because he's taken, obviously just reduced their financial income. Uh, the martial arts in this film are dreadful. It's not dreadful. Gary Daniels is obviously good at it, but it's so poorly filmed that everything is just really close up. Uh, um, it's all people's faces are always taking up the entire screen, and it's like quite shaky. And when there's martial art, when there's any kind of fight sequence, it's just incomprehensible. Um, and whilst Gary Daniels has still got it, this this is just a film where he just walks around moping, basically getting into arguments with people and. Some of the cameos, I, and I call them cameos, like Michael Madsen, right, is literally, for his time in the film, in a pub drinking. <laughs> like, sat down at a bar drinking, and Daryl Hannah's talking at him. And at one point, Michael Madsen just starts spinning on his chair, like David Strathin in our imaginary bar. He's <laughs> literally just spinning on his chair, going, yeah, yeah, as if they're, like, in between filming. And... He's obviously thinning at the back of his head on his crown, and they've put mm. like what appears to be black poop polish to fill it in. And where he's spinning around in this chair is Daryl Hannah's spewing awful dialogue at him for minutes on end. It's catching the light as each rotation, and you can see that it's thinning. So it's just this stupid shine every few times. Um, Eric Roberts is just sat in a chair. Um, at our desk with a map behind him, much like Steven Seagal and most of his modern films, just talking. And it's clearly just an empty room with no nothing else in it apart from the props in shot because it's just echoing. Mm. Um, mm. And there's a, the sequence where Gary Daniels shoots him, they're clearly not together in the same room because it cuts to mm. them. There's di- different lighting, different color like walls behind them, uh, just not in the same location. And Mickey Rourke, for his two scenes at the start and end of the film, is just sat in a hotel room eating lunch. And doesn't even stand up. And that's it. <laughs> like, like, honestly, these people, they must have just said, oh, can we just, can you just say these lines? We'll film you wherever you are in a pub, sat on the couch. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We'll fit it in. And it is one of the laziest films I've ever encountered. And I don't know how much money they wasted on getting all these other people to like basically take the piss and get a free payday. I wish they'd spent it on teaching the director or the cinematographer 
to take a few steps back so I can see what's happening when Gary Daniels gets his fists out of his pockets. Um, it sounds like Steven Seagal should be in this movie, but I guess they, he probably inquired about it and they probably said, ah, oh, no, sorry, we've got another four other has-been actors to sit behind desks, I'm afraid, so can't help you here. Yeah, and also it couldn't be him taking down Russian mobsters because he's now a, a Russian citizen, isn't he? <laughs> much, yeah. So he's like, I can't beat up my my brethren, my <laughs> my, my fellow citizens. Uh, yeah, so whether it's called Skin Traffic or Hitman in London, it is. And my brother paid cash money for this. It was on a DVD. <laughs> Absolutely. It's total bollocks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay. No, I won't watch that. So that isn't even on Prime. Is that like a as a purchase DVD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from, from uh, I believe they pronounce charity shop. I'm not <laughs> sure how you. Um, I've I'm I've only got one more film to discuss okay. here. Um, nice. a little film called Armageddon from 1998. Oh, Been meaning to talk about this for a while. This is this is uh yeah 1998 disaster. Or disaster aversion action movie from Michael Bay, uh, in which an asteroid the size of Texas is flying towards Earth, and NASA employs a group of deep sea drillers led by a homicidally unhinged Bruce Willis to fly up there with some astronauts, land on the asteroid, drill a hole, and drop a nuclear bomb into it. Naturally, so. <laughs> This is Michael Bay. He he get he's got the spectacle, but he's there's no awe, there's no majesty to any of this. And obviously the space physics are complete junk. Like the asteroid, when they land on the asteroid, the idea of an asteroid providing sufficient gravity for them to just wander about on its surface, for example, <laughs> unbelievable. Most of the drama during the mission is just people needlessly panicking, really shouting over comms, and Small time bickering. Uh, Peter Stormare, or Stomari, he shows up as a crazy Russian cosmonaut who's been space in space alone for 18 months. Wow, his performance. Goodness me. He <laughs> is acting in this movie. He's acting with every syllable. It's astonishing. <laughs> every woman in this film is subject to at least one sexist comment, by the way, or at least reference <laughs> to their attractiveness. And the objectification of Bruce Willis's daughter, played by Liv Tyler, it's yeah. particularly creepy because because basically, obviously, they're on this oil rig and all of like the oil rig dudes, they all think of themselves as daddies, basically to her. But but at the same time, commenting constantly on how hot she is. And then mm-hmm. and there's a scene where Bruce Willis actually watches his own daughter make out with Ben Affleck. And not like turn away or, or anything. It's it's really creepy. And they, in the end, there's one there's like one moment where a woman gets to do something heroic by fixing the engine, and literally, a man just pushes her aside and starts hitting it with a spanner. That's that, <laughs> it, and I think that says it all about really what where this film is with regard to sexual politics. It's astonishing. Um, does he then look at what he's holding in his hand and say, oh, hang on, this isn't a spanner. This is Paulie Shaw's career. <laughs> Dude, that would have been funny. But alas, <laughs> no. It's uh, it's a relentlessly intense movie, I guess. Like, 
Bay has a tendency to do, really, doesn't he? Uh, it doesn't give you much time to stop and consider the silliness of literally everything. There are no real characters, just archetypes and caricatures, people embodying certain general themes. You get like the smart one, the funny one, the angry one, the sensitive one. Yeah, you get who, William Fickner. <sighs> Good. Who, who plays the who plays the bloke that uh, does a Rubik's cube like the intelligent one? I can't quite remember who it is. Oh, I can't remember. There's loads of semi-famous people in this. You might yeah. have to look it up. Um, uh, and I suppose when you think about it, like this, well, I suppose along with Michael Bay's other movies, this is really the birth of the ADHD 21st century blockbuster because. It's Michael Bay directing, and but it's also J.J. Abrams writing his propulsive twaddle. And then and you've got Michael Bay just uh, abusing the frame with all his Dutch angles and his hyperactive editing. Uh, so it's terrible, but it is kind of watchable. I still think Deep Impact is the better movie. Um, well, actually, that's better than this or Don't Look Up, for that matter. So... Uh, but yeah, it's absolutely it. It would not be made today. Put it that way. You didn't mention that Will Patton's in this. Uh, Will Patton is in this. Yes, 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 he is. That's right. Is he putting on like a like a broad Norfolk accent, or is he? No, is it just like a, a ge- really gentle, whistly southern really, accent? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a gentle southern accent. He occasionally whistles an S here and there. <laughs> Um, okay then well if you I suppose if we're moving I've got a couple more I can quickly pound through if that's cool yeah go for it yeah Um, uh, I watched The Informer from 2019 starring um, he he whom I fancy Joel Kinnaman Um, and he plays I I thought when I put this on I thought there's another film called The Informer isn't it but I'm thinking of The Informant I think Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah this is 2019 uh, stars Joel Kinnaman as a convict called Peter Kozlov, who, pardon me, but then, uh, Peter Kozlov, sorry, not Kozlov, who is working undercover in this uh, sort of Polish crime syndicate in, I'm assuming it's in L.A. or New York, uh, sorry, L.A., um, in a sort of bid to get his sentence reduced. So he's he's in deep, basically, but he's also like a really loving family man. His wife, played by Anna de Armas, uh, and a daughter, and he just he Rosamund Pike is his contact, and Clive Owen is her boss, and he plays a right a little tinker in this film, let me tell you. Um, and he's good at playing tinkers as well. Um, yes. He Rosamund Pike is sort of trying to help him, who wants him, um, you know, is his contact and wants him to just like get the job done so they can get the this, the the um, the person at the top of this Polish uh, drug syndicate. So then Joel Kinnaman can be free to go back to his family, which is all he wants to do. Um, He gets in deep and there's a problem because in one of the drug deals, an undercover cop is killed. And he says the sort of cold words, which I I think genuinely is right. I'm having a fag. And uh, and Rosamund Pike is told to just pull out and just leave him to it. And because he's expendable, Uh, he ends up managing to get out of that situation. But then because the Polish drug syndicate that he's in with and then having doubts about him because of his actions 
they then say, right, you have to go back into prison and be sort of take over our drug shipments in there. And then the FBI again come back out and say, oh, actually, we're interested in you again now. And so he's basically completely caught in the middle with no support from anyone. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty generic film in that it's just a lot of it is just him in prison and wanting just to not to be in this situation so he can go and give Ana de Armas a big kiss on the bottom and hug his daughter. Uh, but um, it, it's it's sort of elevated slightly by how Rosamund Pike's uh, um, what's the word? Rosamund Pike is, is torn between just wanting to move forward in her career but can see like how poorly and dismissively he, Joel Kinnon's character has been treated. Mm. Um, it, it's all pretty standard stuff. Shiv's in you know in fights and taking sides in prison and blah 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 blah. But it's kind of functional enough and brisk enough. It's two hours long, but it really doesn't feel it. I thought it was a 90 minute to, and because I fancy Joel Kinnaman, it, it's functional enough to sort of work. It does get a little bit silly towards the end, but if Joel Kinnaman wasn't in it, I probably wouldn't have brought it up on the podcast. Right. I just like talking about him. So but it's average, but elevated by your love for Joel Kinnaman, really. It's yes, quite a beautiful a, family, him and Anna de Armas. Yeah. I mean, I almost wish that I was their father so I could <laughs> Bruce Willis it up and just watch them <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, uh, yes, so it, that's on uh, that's on Netflix, and that's a like a pretty solid, breezy, you know, it's not particularly heavy-duty um, crime thriller. It sounds like a mid-budget crime thriller, the kind of thing that would never get into the cinema nowadays. Neuro. Another film that would never get at the cinema nowadays is 13 Minutes, starring Amy Smart, Thora Birch, Anne Heche, and Paz Vega. Um, this is a film. Um, what was the name? I have to find out the name of the town. This is. Yeah, I, I can't see the name of the town from this, but. It is based on a real life, like a like a storm that just whipped through a town in 13 minutes and completely devastated it. But the film, it's a very TV movie-ish because um, uh, Faye actually put this on and I kind of stumbled in and said, oh, no, I'll, I'll watch this with you. Um, and it's, she said, oh, it's about a tornado. And I, and I thought, but you could have fooled me because for 45 minutes, I was just watching really gentle familial drama. Right. And I thought, right. And then of course the storm hits and, it, and it's how everyone's perspectives on their families and their loved ones changes or doesn't um, after the impact of the storm has basically just completely devastated their hometown. And I, I was quite impressed with those scenes because the, 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 the actual storm is pretty much off screen, but you see the devastation it leaves behind. And, mm. and apart from one or two specific scenes, it appears to just be minimal use of CG, okay. which is quite nice um, because um it, it, you just it's just like a load of rubbish everywhere you you've got you know um a, a daughter it's pretty generic stuff you've got a daughter thorbish's daughter's pregnant by someone um who's a bit of a silly sausage and it's her having an awkward conversation with her mum um amy smart is the local um she sure she's there as a basically a storm expert and her husband is a tv weatherman and they can't find the daughter who's um partially deaf uh, and Hesh has got a son who is has got eyebrows that have been plucked and he has come out as gay and they were dealing with that just as the storm hit. It's all pretty silly stuff, but it's sort of so gentle and so like cut and dry black and white and how it approaches it and breezy that it's it's like a weirdly 
okay watch if you're in the mood for something that's completely unchallenging. Okay. It's very much a TV movie, and I was watching it with like a glass of wine, sort of half pottering my phone, but I wasn't like thinking, Jesus Christ. I actually watched it, thought, oh, that was okay. So, not really a recommendation, but if someone else puts it on, you'd be able to sit through it without vomiting blood and maggots. <laughs> High praise indeed. <laughs> um, uh, two left Armor of, Armor of God to Operation Condor, or just Operation Condor, I think, as it's called on Amazon Prime. Um, I couldn't get enough Jackie Chan basically after watching yeah. Prime Story and um, Skip Trace. I'm sure Skip Trace is called something else as well. Um, and I put you this on because so, uh, it doesn't oh, sound that exciting, just, really, does it? Just, just a, uh, another thing as well. I have a real problem with the films from like the well every other decade apart from like this one that are just incorrect on Amazon Prime. Like when I was looking for mm. Jackie Chan films, the picture for Armor of God to Operation Condor is like a really touched up high definition image of Jackie Chan, and it said 2021, and I thought. Oh, I quite fancy one of his older movies, but then when I clicked on it, it came up with like Golden Harvest Productions, and I thought, right. Yes. So this this is a this is an earlier film then, and I just wish they would just embrace the fact that these films are from different decades, and have yeah. Im- images and trailers that treat them as such, so it's much clearer for the viewer. Yes. Um, um, yeah, because the, sometimes, especially when I'm trawling Prime for some PM quality 80s horror trash, say. And I'll yeah. see like a post, like something will come up, it'll be something I haven't heard of before. And it will look like, oh, that looks like an an 80s movie. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll have a look at that. And then, it, and then it says, oh, 2021. So I just assume that it's like a kind of retro style modern film. And I'm like, I don't want to watch that, do I? Because that is something that is unenjoyable. So, but then I find out when I actually press play, because I have a suspicion about it, grainy footage comes up you realize and it's in like four by three ratio and you realize yes 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 this is directly from the 80s this was made in the 80s and this is a vhs transfer and that is what i want to watch but it's so badly maintained the database is so badly maintained on prime that you just it's really unreliable there's a couple of times I've wanted to just contact Amazon and say, can I just have a job with you and like sort out your subtitling on your movies yeah. and yeah, just sort because it's just surely would just take one person to just go through these videos and say, it's that's from 1982. It's not from 2022. Just <laughs> why is that year on there? And <laughs> um, yeah, it's infuriating, especially for us fans of 80s trash cinema. <clears throat> so Armour of God to Operation God, I've never seen the original Armour of God, but I'm, pretty much certain i'm going to work through jackie chan's canon because i don't know if he's made a bad film <laughs> um and he, it it struck me as almost like a an uh, a slightly goofier asian um indiana jones because uh-huh. uh, it just starts off with him on this weird i don't even know what it is it's like a like a fan powered like horizontal parachute thing that he sort of uses to get onto this onto this ridiculous island and then he goes to steal he goes in there to steal these jewels and as he's about to steal these sort of uh, these huge emeralds from this temple the the um there's like this tribe there covered in i don't know like 
chalk and they they came out of the walls and watch him and he's like oh I'll just pop this back and uh, and then they're like no 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 by all means nick it and he's like okay and then he, and then they say nick, nick all the jewels and he's filling his satchel with jewels laughing and he just stops for like a and they're all like clapping and like letting him do it and then he stops for like a sip of water and the moment he has a sip of water they're all oh and then they all chase him which was quite funny like don't drink the water Jackie so then he obviously to escape the Rupert he pulls out and inflates a zorbing ball and jumps into it and just has this most unbelievable journey down a vertical rocky slope um which was which was brilliant and that's how the film starts off so it's you know very reminiscent of indiana jones with the uh, with the chase sequence uh, with the ball and then he just gets asked by the government to go off and discover all this Nazi gold. And it's just a romp, basically, through these countries with him just getting through situations by the skin of his ass and just doing amazing stunts. Mm. Um, it's very slapsticky. And again, yeah. there, are, there are just some like dubious sort of, not dubious, they're pretty gentle, but in terms of what the overall tone of the film is, when people start bringing up sex jokes, you're like, oh, it just seems like really, like a different writer has done this part of the film. And, you know, like... Um, scenes where uh, female just towels just pulled off and they're just completely exposed for like a laugh. It's just almost like porkies for a second. And you're like, okay, again, mm. not sure if that needed to happen. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the, when it comes to it, the, the sort of more slapstick comedy and the, there's a sense of scope and a real sense of travel and ground covered. That's quite cool. Mm. And uh, yeah. And they, and they just end up in the desert in this, underground combat trying to find this gold and all is well until the final sequence when they're in this sort of underground hangar trying to work out how to get the gold out and there's a, a, an extended scene where he's in a fist fight with two people and someone keeps on pressing buttons that turn fans at certain parts of the room on and off all the time and they keep getting blown around and stuck against the walls it goes on for 20 minutes Whoa. and it's not it's not funny or interesting, and it's it really takes the wind out of the the wind uh, out of the sails of the last like it, well pretty much like a third of the film. It's it's bizarrely tedious. Um, so yeah, that was that was really odd because I thought, is this gonna keep going on? And yeah, it does. It does. So I believe <laughs> yeah, the they're sticking with it. Yeah, they're not, they're keen. Um, so that was that was a bit disappointing. But yeah, say aside from that, it's just it's just Jackie Chan doing what he is good at. So that was that was a good end. Um, apart from the end, um, that one sounds more slapsticky than. Yeah, oh, very, very much so, very much so. But but again, it's it, it it's got enough in it to be an enjoyable watch. Uh, especially because some of the clothes he wears in that film in some of the heat he is in when he's going through the Sahara desert in a leather waistcoat, I was thinking I would take that off or I would at least undo the buttons. I would, <laughs> I wouldn't wear it. I wouldn't wear it. Um, and that's and called I, armor of God Two operation, operation condor. condor. Yeah. Not, not, not condor man. Mm. Uh, and not three days of the condor, both of which are all amazing films. And not Michael Haneke's Amour. No, not that either. Um, the final film I watched, well, that I can see here, is The Adam Project, which is a new film oh, directed yeah. by Sean Levy. From the team, it seems, behind Free Guy. 
mm-hmm. which, which was a concern, um, as is Ryan Reynolds in a film these days. Um, and it is a sci-fi time travel film where, for, from the trailer I watched before this, um, Ryan Reynolds goes back in time uh, as obviously like a 42-year-old man to come across his 12-year-old self and, and effectively banter ensues. And I, when I watched this film at the start, I thought, is this going to be Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds, which it is, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just going to get on my nerves. But there's, it's actually a, a, a level of charm from the from the young actor who plays young Ryan Reynolds. Uh, mm. What's his name? Uh, Walker Scoble. Mm. Um, and Ryan Reynolds is 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 his usual snarky self, but he's also quite jaded. So there's a slight twist on his usual persona. Okay. And Mark Ruffalo plays his father in it. And and there's enough heart in it, uh, but, but quite frankly, like hovering over sentimentality to keep me interested, as is um, Jennifer Garner's character as a sort of a grieving mother and Catherine Keener as an evil overlord, effectively. It's one of those films that it's obviously got a budget and it's got big a big star in it, but it feels weirdly low. Um, what's the word? Uh, it wasn't as intergalactic as I thought. Because when whenever okay. people talk about time travel, I thought that this is going to be spaceships and stuff. But it's basically just him arguing with his younger self and getting involved in this time loop issue. It's okay. not like a, a huge scale battle or anything like that. So I enjoyed it. And I think because I, I well, I certainly know because I'm a, I'm a father of a young child myself when it came to the father son dynamics, it is kind of geared into my DNA to get like teary at these things as ridiculous as the end of this film is i was still sitting there going oh, oh god he's reconnected with his son um so yeah that was um there was a, a few moments of clearing my throat and glancing out the window thinking about car engines for a minute while i manned up but um it's a far better film than free guy and it actually ha- it doesn't feel like a hollow shell and it's because of of people like mark ruffalo and jennifer garner and ryan reynolds like doing good work if you know what i mean mm. they so yeah I, I i enjoyed it it's probably too sentimental for some but um i i was i don't often watch those sorts of films so i was i was fine with it and that is all i have i think uh, this is one that tom cruise was meant to be it was originally for tom cruise the adam project yes. would that make sense would that work it literally says here our oh, production of the film 2012 with tom cruise attached to star yes very much so, so um, gonna, i yeah. i reckon it, the script would have been different because I think it would have been it would have leaned more on the emotional side yeah. then, um, but obviously they they I'm assuming they've rewritten the script or because it's very Ryan Reynolds snarkiness and the snappy dialogue back and yeah. forth in his self. some of which is funny, some of which is irritating, but that's just what you get with a Ryan Reynolds film. I, I did not get along with Free Guy, but from the sounds of it, this is a little bit more sincere, perhaps. Yes, because it's like, it, well, it's it's sort of well for for you and I especially, it's you know, it's it's things which could be relatable as opposed okay. to just free, okay, which was and basically anything that involves in. I'm just totally disillusioned with anything involving video games. Yeah, basically. Or like a virtual world. I just think it's just obviously not for me. If I can watch something like Ready Player One and still not really get emotionally involved <laughs> or, or care that much about it, I'm just I don't know. I'm just going to avoid them from now on. I think it might be best, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, that's film of the week, then. Yeah, film of the week. 
is obviously Armageddon for me. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's the Batman. I'm glad. But yeah, I'm glad. everyone should, you know, if they get a chance, have a watch of Nosferatu. They really should because it's quite amazingly ahead of its time. But I think it you can watch it for free on YouTube as well. Yeah, it's probably out of copyright. I would have thought by now. <laughs> what a hundred years? Oh, come on, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I should watch it. Is it a full like ninety minute or is it no, short? I, I think know. I think there's it's only about 60, 70 minutes maybe. Oh, like That's Granny like... from nineteen ninety five. Good. Okay. What what a double bill that would be. <laughs> one of the most <laughs> seminal horror titles ever made, and one of the worst films ever made, back to back. Exactly. Granny is seminal. Um, so, yes, The Batman. Watch it. Try and watch it in the cinema if you can, because it is absolutely beautiful. And it's um, and I think from just from your perspective, our perspective, it's it's the Batman film we've been waiting for. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm keen for this. I am keen for this. I'm going to watch this with my eyes and my feet. Um. I think for me, it's going to be underwater. I've mm-hmm. watched a few good films. There's, I mean, I don't think I've seen the Jackie Chan film. Mm. They're like really kind of like they've been good, but they've been problems with each one I've seen. And I enjoyed Cop Shop. Misfits is a one to avoid. But yeah, underwater. Thank you, Laszlo Buckets, because and I, and again, don't if you're thinking if what I said it made you think, oh, I might watch that. Just chuck it on. Don't yeah. read anything about it because that's kind of part of the fun of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, so underwater, and I've prepared this week's Arkansas as well. Ooh, okay. So this is Liv Tyler mm. to Stephen Tyler, no, Liv Tyler to Jackie Chan. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, you've got Liv Tyler, you know, the, the film you mentioned today is basically an ensemble cast, and Jackie that Chan has been help. in so many films. Yeah, I think this is doable, but it's just yeah. a question of, yeah, this is one way I can see myself getting like a four step or something and thinking it must be quicker than that. It must be. Yeah. But remember, guys, no, no research, no assistance. You've got to do this purely from memory. Yeah. And, and maybe are they allowed to like discuss with their partners? Yeah, I guess so. We can have a bit of cheating if we want. That's fine. Quick, trick question. That's cheating. Um, no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you. Um, oh, by the way, Rupert, happy fiftieth um, episode. Yeah. Uh, may there be at least five or six more. <laughs> um, and to end, I'm just gonna just just a little just a little joke I came up with this morning in the shower. Okay. So um, you've got to guess. I'm gonna do an impression, and you have to guess who it is. Uh, what they're laughing at okay so so what's this <laughs> oh, imagine that oh that's funny oh funny that is i've got to guess who that is and what they're laughing at that is robert duval laughing at a, a script for a reboot of the godfather that is actually Godfrey Ho after someone has just explained to him what a script is. <laughs> <laughs> so, bye, bye all. Happy 50th, and I'll see you all soon. Bye for now.